Hello, welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, a weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Cyrus Monk, who is a pro cyclist and cycling coach, Damian Roos, who is founder of the Semi-Pro Cyclist Podcast and a professional cycling coach. And then there's also me, Dr. Jason Boynton, sports scientist and cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club podcast is recorded live in the presence of an online audience on the Clubhouse app. So you uh, can join in and ask questions or participate in any of the discussions as we are having them. This week we'll be discussing what it takes to go from an amateur cyclist to a pro cyclist. And just want to take a quick second to say uh, hello to the audience and thank you for joining us today. Um, And originally I had a little fun exercise uh, laid out for us today, but um, that that required a little bit of input from somebody outside of the podcast and I haven't got anything from them yet. So um, the only little thing that I had on my radar today was, or not today, but this week, uh, was I had a chance to For some reason, I came across, I was actually looking up uh, peer-reviewed literature on functional threshold power, and for some reason, the Google Scholar uh, search brought up one of these uh, podcasts that were discussing the functional threshold power is dead idea, and so I took a moment to to listen to that. I'm, that's four years behind now, but... uh, I mentioned it to you guys today before we uh, hopped into the room here um, and just had to start having some general discussions. Is is this, I mean, it's obviously old news. Is this gone? Are we done with it? Is what, what Damien, you're like on the pulse of things. Um, so, I mean, are we boring the listeners by talking about this or... Is, is everyone just kind of like moved on? You know, I don't know where, where it ended up afterwards. It became a thing because it was pushed through marketing to launch a new update in the Sufferfest software. And then after that, I don't know what happened to it. Of course, there's a bit of noise and a bit of grumbling around people that hadn't been thinking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think coaches in general that had have been profiling athletes across different durations for a long time sort of ignored the whole thing and just went back to what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think we'll just for a little bit of explanation in there um, about the, the to set things up from what I'm seeing is that basically, you know, FTP, we've said this a million times on this show, is basically a measure of threshold. It's just one measure and it has, and measures of threshold, whatever they may be, have, seem to have a high correlation with success in endurance sport. And so it's important to measure it. And in... And under this idea, the the competitor uh, to FTP was this idea of um, power profiling or athlete profiling, which basically looks at uh, power bests over multiple time lengths. So FTP would be over one hour and this power profiling might be like over i'm not exactly sure how sufferfest does it but it might be over five seconds five seconds one minute five minutes Mm -hmm. and 20 minutes or something yeah which is so 
the to me um but well before i get into my opinion do you have any thoughts on this cyrus uh yeah i i think fairly similar to what damien just said the everyone was all over it for a little bit there and then kind of forgotten about it and gone back to to what was being done before i think the beauty of ftb ftp is just the standardized nature of it in that everyone knows what you're talking about as soon as you bring it up and for athletes working with multiple coaches or multiple influencers uh, everyone knows what you mean when you say ftp so i think that makes it a fairly easy tool to use for everyone yeah um and so my take on it was it was just <laughs> it's just some kind of a silly criticism because um not that i'm a huge i'm definitely not an ftp fanboy um and i definitely have my criticisms of ftp and i think it should be criticized um but the criticisms that were here don't seem to come from the right from the angle that i would criticize it at all so basically it's funny that they were like, well, we're doing, we're, we're looking at power profiling and it's like, well, it's kind of an unfair criticism because within the whole training peaks and training of the power meter, uh, metrics, power profiling is a thing, but one of the first analyses that came along, uh, within that platform. And so it just seems silly to they're like oh this is better than ftp we do power profiling it's like well yeah everyone knows that power profiling is a superior way to uh judge an athlete versus judging them just off of threshold um that's why you can do that already with um within the Kagan metric so it just seemed like i mean it it sounded like a really disingenuous argument and it just to me was pure um marketing and while i was listening to this podcast the there they kind of tried to frame it as like here was the people that were for it and the people that were you know people who are on the coggin ftp side and people who are on the sufferfest uh neil henderson side um and to me it just <laughs> it sounds horrible <laughs> but i was like this is like watching ants fight because they were like, this is my non-scientific reasoning for this. And then they were like, well, this is our non-scientific reasoning for this. And no one was like going at it and saying, I mean, they had good plausible coaching, uh, pragmatic reasoning um, for sure. D definitely. And, but from what I was, you know, this, this pro power profiling that was proposed by Neil Henderson and used in Sufferfest to my knowledge, I've never seen it validated in a uh, in an experiment and published in a peer-reviewed journal, and that honestly is not uncommon. I know Mark Quad uh, published a testing profile, and I think also I know Paula Manespa has published one as well. So just to name a few people that have published power testing uh, protocols, and so it is just like. It, it, we we haven't got we haven't moved i don't think we've in in the scientific sense we haven't really moved this the sport forward 
and I just thought it was at once I had that like dig into it for a second. I just thought I was like, well, this is just marketing and a kind of a disingenuous argument against um, FTP. So that's the end of my thoughts. So I just wanted to have like that was my little quick, quick topic. Um, yeah, I might sound like to- a total boomer because I'm four years behind on that, but that's what I came across today in, in lieu of my um, feedback that I was waiting for from uh, this professional. I don't know if you guys had any other thoughts on it. Uh, yeah, I think the thing to remember with uh, FTP is that it's not going to be perfect, but it is definitely useful. So I think, and that's the thing with many of the thresholds and means of generating zones for athletes to train in, um, none of them are perfect for all athletes, but uh, FTP has been shown to be useful for many, many athletes and there is absolutely no problem with continuing to use it for the purposes of coaching and you can definitely get some big gains from using FTP to determine your training zones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and last week we talked about the concept of uh, path dependency a bit, and to me, you know, it was, is FTP dead? Um, that's kind of like, to me, it's almost like saying, are railroad tracks dead? Using that analogy again, it's like, it's it's there already. Unless you have something, some stellar kind of amazing argument for why um, it shouldn't be used, again it going into how much energy it would take for people to swap over to something else it's 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 silly it's just pure marketing um from what i can see i got one more thing to add though yeah go ahead i mean the um the thing i i sort of see that it did do it sort of started the conversation a little bit around exactly what the definition of FTP is and moving away from the traditional 60 minutes to opening it up that it fluctuates and it's kind of the best steady state power that you can do over an extended period of time and I think this information was coming out of um, all the WKO information where they're modeling the time to exhaustion and the modeled FTP so they're looking at the relationship between the actual number and then how long you can actually sustain that number so that was that's part of the change since that this you know ftp's dead thing kicked off in 2018 the conversation has changed and i think it's going to go even further there seems to be a lot of papers out there now matching ftp to the other thresholds all the other thresholds that are out there and i think i do think at some point where like there's going to be a bit of a push to shift to something else um Mm. what that is who knows because it it does lead to that thing like you you know path dependency it's there it's very difficult to just swap out one metric for another if there's a complete system but uh, i think something's going to happen i feel there's a bit of momentum from the science side for people to start talking about Um, real physiological thresholds rather than just you know something that's not validated that gets into this topic i've been teasing in the group here and i'm hoping two weeks from now is when um I want to bring this topic up of like kind of discussing all how all the thresholds uh, relate with each other. And to be quite honest, when I saw the like thresholds dead come up in the context of what I've been reading for this um, for this topic I want to discuss coming up here, I was like, oh, someone's someone's using critical power in a commercial thing. I was like, sweet. Um, and no, it wasn't about critical power, which is 
has tons of papers on it, is scientifically validated. It's, it's been sitting there and it's, and it, it's, it's, you can do, and not many people know this, but you can figure out critical power in a three minute test. Uh, it's, it, it's, I mean, how many people, you know, I mean, obviously it's, it's going to be difficult to do that three minute test, uh, at home because of what it involves, but, uh, come on, three, three minute test, you know, maybe you could have like some of these like cycling gyms or whatever set up so they can do these three minute tests. It'd be like a good income for them. Um, but yeah, it's just like one of these things that path dependency, the marketing, it's FTP kind of took off and critical power has just been sitting in the background. And I can imagine Andrew Jones and I know Philip Skiba is, is definitely, they're a little bit miffed about it. I'm sure to some extent, but um, yeah, it is what it is. From there, what uh we're going to the bigger topic you guys ready for that yep all right well i will frame it uh here the big topic for today is jason's gonna kind of sit back and moderate the conversation and i personally am really interested in hearing about the amateur to pro roadmap and this is it's really good because you know cyrus you are a pro so you've gone from amateur to pro and you've had that experience and damien you have coached an athlete from uh amateur to pro and i'm interested in this because i think as we uh, you and i discussed a little bit prior that the, the more a lot of coaches will end up with maybe coaching a lot of amateurs, um, amateur like age groupers. And once you're an amateur age, age grouper, you never, you're not going to go pro or you might be coaching juniors for a long time and, and you just work with juniors or you might only work with the pros. So you could coach for a very, very long time. I think I'm close to 15 years now and 13, something I forget. Math isn't my strong suit on the fly, but, um, yeah, I have yet to have work with an athlete that wanted to go from amateur to pro until just recently. So now it's a new situation for me. I think this athlete can do it. Now I'm interested to hearing the experiences of the people who have gone through this already. So uh, with that, I, I think I think I'll hand it off to you, Cyrus. That was what we. Yep. It, it seems the most appropriate to hand it off to you. Yeah. So I will take the amateur to pro framework and I'll take it back a little bit further to start with to basically birth, which <laughs> yes. is because basically some people are not born to be professional cyclists and that is unfortunately the nature of professional sport yep. is you're taking the people that have a chance and then getting the ones who work the hardest and the smartest and they're the ones that end up being the most successful but the vast majority of the population won't have a chance to begin with mm -hmm. so i've got three things listed here that i think are the key requirements to that you have to have to become a professional cyclist and i'd be interested to hear from you guys on whether you think there are any others that are 
really important and must-haves, but the first would be a high physiological ceiling. So we're talking road cycling here, and the most important thing is going to undoubtedly be aerobic capacity. Even for the world-class road sprinters, if you look at their aerobic capacity compared to the normal population, they're still going to be in the top 1% or 2% the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously all other rider types on top of that are going to improve from there. So the physiological ceiling for me has to be quite high. And then in order to reach that, the other two things on this list would be grit, which we I think we mm-hmm. spoke about a few weeks ago. Yep. And that's just the ability to be able to suffer uh, not be scared of pain and then also deal with setbacks because every rider is going to have crashes, illness, uh, yeah, periods of fatigue or lack of form. And then the third I have on my list is focus. So just the ability to dedicate a huge part of your life to becoming a professional cyclist, the hours, the, the mental capacity the sacrifices made to other areas of your life, which it is a sport that requires a lot of sacrifice because of the pure hours required and the fact that you're living overseas and living in a bubble, like a training bubble the majority of the time, which doesn't come with a lot of other pursuits. So those would be the three on my list. Damien, I'd be interested if you'd add anything to that list that's required before you even start training. I don't know if it's a subcategory of any of the ones you mentioned, but I think selfishness is actually one of the big ones for me. Mm. Wanting to put yourself first in many situations, including just generally in life, because that's how you see your path moving forward or whatever. But I, I see it playing out in a lot of different scenarios in training and in racing. So that's probably the only one I'd add that is missing. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that also, actually. And I think especially when being a team leader that um, comes into account even more. And obviously to win races, you have to be the leader of the team and feel like you deserve to have others sacrificing their chances for you, which requires an element of selfishness. And then with the lifestyle as well, I often would tell people that I have the most selfish lifestyle on the planet because I am constantly just leaving people behind as I travel around and going and staying at different different people's houses as I'm traveling and then leaving them and then also yeah family obviously I'm spending most of the time overseas away from them and friends as well um it is you have to be able to prioritize yourself and your own pursuits otherwise it's it's not the right sport I think um did you have anything on that, Jason? Any other requirements you think? Well, I did a little bit of reading a few papers and actually while well, I had this paper up and you were saying off those things, it came, those came really close to what this article was saying. And I'll just read the key point here off this review, which is, um, it was called, the review is called Evidence-Based Prerequisites and Precursors for Athlete, Athletic Talent, a Review. Um, by Vladimir B. Isserin. And the third key point here, almost you almost nailed it, I think. And he, 
He states, studies of Olympic-level athletes have shown that their superiority compared with less successful counterparts is predisposed to by appropriate body status, i.e., did you, pa- did you pick your parents well, um, <laughs> high learning and trainability potential, and physiological pre- prerequisites. Also, did you pick your parents well? Um, and in addition, personality traits, early acquisition of psychological skills, and an exceptional attitude to training play crucial roles. So I think you hit most of it there. Um, I don't know if you guys want me to go into a little bit of the my take on the physiology and the physiology research we'd probably hit that real quick yeah um just so i can so i can just empty that all out of my brain and then just sit back and listen to you guys talk (laughs) um but so there was a really good uh, paper that came out from paulo manespa he's actually former performance solutions guy at cycling australia and just moved over to the science director position at the ais so big congrats to paulo manespa on his advancement in his career there that's awesome but this was really neat to read some of his work that's like 10 years old now um and this paper that he had was they basically, when he was working at MapEye, and they have tons and tons of data from testing, you know, all these Italian, mostly Italian junior cyclists over years and years and years. And so they had, they've started this, I think, back in maybe 1996 or 97. And, you know, uh, Paolo must have analyzed this data in the later 2000s. And so what he was able to do is take this big cohort of uh, data that they had been setting on over all these years and then look forward and see who had become a pro out of all of these athletes that they had tested. And so you would think that there would be this that the aerobic ability or the aerobic fitness of an individual would have this high predictability within whether a junior will become a professional cyclist, but it doesn't. As the title of the article says, the title, the title of the article is aerobic fitness variables do not predict the professional career of a young cyclist. And so there's a lot of kind of interesting things that were going on in there. And to me, that makes sense. I, I think most coaches would agree, and I say this all the time, talent is a dime a dozen. What matters is that you have these other kind of personality traits to go along with it. As as you pointed out, Cyrus would be grit. Um, So it's just really interesting to, to me. It's like, yes, in order to get into the pro ranks, you need those physiological characteristics. But if all you have is physiological characteristics then you're not going to make it. So um, there are, I'm trying to think of there's, there was some other interesting things in there. Some um, about basically with the juniors um, and maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of it, but it was interesting that with junior racing, you would have the national level races. And when these, when juniors compete on, on quote unquote, the big stage uh, against other juniors, their races are going to be shorter and have less climbing. And so they showed in this study here, one of the side findings that they had uh, was that the the national team selection, the riders that were selected for national teams were heavier 
because and were more um, there was less climbers and more flat specialists, so like sprinters and time trialist type people that would be selected for nationals because at that level you the courses that the juniors would see aren't going to be challenging enough where a climber is going to perform really well in those races i also think a lot of that a key point there is just development in juniors and and that's my next topic along the way so we'll we'll Mm -hmm. uh, disclose that Mm -hmm. now that yeah we'll move on to the juniors but uh with that development is obviously testosterone is a hugely beneficial hormone when it comes to athletic performance and mm-hmm. if you have a junior that's that's gone through puberty and they're, they're full of testosterone yep. they're going to be a bit bigger a bit stronger mm-hmm. and as you said that race dynamic they're short fast flat races um a lot of it is just going to advantage whoever's developed earlier so that's why when mm-hmm. i've got my my junior racing here as part of the pathway from amateur to pro, I've got a, a question mark next to it because it's not a vital part of the pathway. We see a lot of people come in either right at the end of juniors or miss the junior phase mm-hmm. altogether. And so I think it's important to note that if you have someone coming to you in their early 20s looking to go pro, that's still possible. And I think with with women, it's probably possible mm. even later again because mm. we see them having l- longer careers um i was just about to bring something up related to that that i kind of forgot to bring up when i when i uh was framing this whole thing and that is in this scenario of developing an amateur to a pro i think there's two scenarios that i think of that i can think of that you're going to see you're going to see an athlete that was like you, Cyrus, or like Damien, where you guys started really young and moved all the way through up for one sport, or the scenario that I that I am, um, or the athlete that I am currently am working with right now is coming from another sport. So he had his development in another sport, but he was started very young, and so he's there's a number of physiological thing adaptations. Some of that physiological adaptations are there, and then also, but like there isn't necessarily the skills and things that you guys would have picked up um, with with your stuff. But um, and you brought up female athletes, and in the U.S. at least, from my understanding, the the former pathway is much more women are are much more likely to have that happen. Yeah. And so they would get injured playing and playing soccer or running or something like that. They would switch to the bike. And from there on, the bike became their primary way of um, uh, primary uh, sport to compete in. But uh, I'll leave it with you uh, and carry it to carry on your thought here. Yeah. So what I've got listed here for for junior racing, the three key things I think that you would aim to get out of racing at a junior level and the junior athletes I'm coaching and working with is learning the skills and racecraft uh, required. So it's stuff such as cornering, sprinting, where to sit in the bunch, and then also losing a lot of races because you just learn if you can get a lot of losses out of the way in juniors it's probably a a good thing because especially if you're one of the stronger riders but making a lot of mistakes there that you can learn from and transfer to when you do move up the levels and the 
racing becomes a bit more cutthroat and there may be less opportunities. So that's one of the things is just basically skills. And then mm-hmm. the a really important thing I encourage with all juniors is just above all, avoid burning out. I see so many talented juniors and this is a story the world over, just really talented in the under 13s and under 15s getting given massive hours, quitting every other sport, quitting every other aspect of their life and then winning absolutely everything in the juniors and then either they become sick of it of their own accord because they've done nothing else for their their youth or they get to a level where they start getting tested and losing more races than they win and giving up the sport altogether because they've been just yeah way too hard at it during their junior years when there's plenty of other things that you can be enjoying so that's the the main thing i've got down there for junior racing and then one of the other things you can gain out of junior racing is gaining exposure so if you are in state teams or national teams there it puts your name on the map so that later on uh, it's mm-hmm. something that coaches might see or team directors might see and think, oh, I remember seeing this kid won this state title or national title back then. I think it's important for juniors to remember that it's not like any pro teams uh, would care at all about junior results on a CV. That's because, mm-hmm. as you said, the correlation isn't that high between junior results and potential at an elite level but I think just that name recognition and even from a sponsorship perspective if you're a a successful junior it might allow you to get onto a, a team that can give you a bike and some free kit earlier on so that there's there's less of a a financial input than an amateur that comes to the sport fresh at 22 years old and has to fork out 10 grand just to get started which can be a difficult thing for most people Mm -hmm. uh damien did you have anything else from your junior experience that or work with juniors before that you'd add to that well i was definitely one of the juniors that burnt out didn't make it past juniors and a lot of that probably was because of the focus early on with um going all in on training and then not having the, uh, the, the, I don't know what it is exactly. It's not like the mental capacity, but the uh, ability to look further ahead and not just focus on what's in front of you. And actually the, the end goal is in 10 years down the line. It's not the race next weekend or even next year. Um, that would be a, a better way for me to, to look at it if I was looking at someone around that training that age. But it, the, the big thing here probably is that if you're talking um, just pure development from somebody young coming up at this age, if you're 15 sort of to 17 up to 18, this is really the learn to compete stage. This is the time mm-hmm. when you are learning those skills, the skills of how to win uh, as well yep. as everything that's around with it. And then if you transfer that onto somebody that has – built up an engine through another sport and then is coming so you know a 20 year old that has a background that wants to then move forward then this is where they're at they're in the learn to compete phase yeah they have to focus so on I'll, learning the skills i'll just uh, interrupt here damien and i'll just um 
just play the moderator role because I have the different phases in front of me here just so that we can lay them out for the listeners. Um, in the kind of basic, what do we want to call long-term athlete development model, uh, you would have your phases that would be, you would have the first would be the fundamental phase, which capital F-U-N, <laughs> uh, fundamental. And then you would have the training to train phase, the training to compete phase, and the tra- training to win phase. Uh, so I heard the training to train phase and I was like, I'll get these in here now. So, um, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, just to figure that probably give a little bit of scope and a little bit of idea to the to the listeners there. Yeah, and the thing I'm working off is the Canadian version of this, their mm-hmm. long-term yeah. athlete development. And from mm-hmm. what I understand, they adjusted it for cycling, so they added a couple of extra phases into it. Mm-hmm. But it does give a really good framework in sport years. So how long you've actually been in the sport and the things mm-hmm. to focus on around that time. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I've sort of changed my mind over the last couple of years as far as competition is concerned. I think you should hold off for as long as possible. Um, seeing living mm-hmm. in Scandinavia and seeing how it's done here, and especially somewhere like mm-hmm. Norway, where even in team sports that have a winner because it's a and a lot of people feeling like they've won in, in say, football um, because there's a score there. They don't actually publish the scores anywhere. They're all just concentrating on getting together with their friends and just having some fun or whatever. And then it's only mm-hmm. much later that they'll start pushing them into something specific. So I've definitely mm-hmm. changed my mind on on how much competition somebody younger um, should be doing. And this is seems like it lines up with... Uh, that transition from juniors to seniors and uh, yeah, what Cyrus was kind of saying, what, what should be the focus around this area as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I think the, uh, you go, Jason. Yeah. I was just going to interject really quick here. Just uh, the, playing my devil's advocate kind of counter role here um, on that. I, I've definitely, I've heard of that Canadian uh, approach to long-term athlete development I'm not 100% sure, but maybe did you did they get it from the UK at all or not? Are they? Um, do you know? I don't know where the but, original one comes from. Okay, so the the review that I came across and I was reading it was uh, it's 10 years old, uh, to be fair, but it's um, it was the long term athlete development model, colon uh, physiological evidence and application with uh, Ford at all. And it was interesting to me because this review was actually very critical of this model of the different phases and not critical in like, in the sense it was like, this is a bad way to do it, but more so critical in the sense that at the time that the, rev- that this model was developed and at the time of this review, there was, wasn't really good physiological data out there to kind of um kind of back up their their thinking at least in terms of the you know how how to train people at each one of these phases and that means for the most part there's not a lot of really good longitudinal studies for look at looking at people from the start to the end for these uh for, for looking at these um long-term athlete development models but one thing i will say about that criticism is similar to the points that Cyrus and I were making about 
rest weeks during a season where, you know, people and coaches might be trying to interject some kind of physiological uh, explanation for why you they think you need to have a rest rest at the end of the season it might not be necessary to come up with like complex physiological arguments for these things if you just look at it in terms of like kids like fun make sure it's fun yeah you know um so so that that was i said i wasn't going to talk a lot i guess i lied but I, i just figured that would be a good place to kind of put that uh criticism at what while we were talking about that model but uh, it's, it's like, well, if you've got a better way to do it, I, I guess let's hear it. But I think the point of that review was, hey, l- this method works, but just realize it shouldn't be like written in stone because there's not a whole lot of great evidence out here right now to, to support it. But that's where I think you split into two things here. There is the skill side, the fun side, the competition. But then there is, mm-hmm. when you are talking about people growing up there are critical periods Mm -hmm. of development that need to be Mm -hmm. factored into decisions around training and things because you don't want to do any damage to anybody you Mm -hmm. want to maximize Mm -hmm. their potential if that's what they want and that's where they're Mm -hmm. heading so Mm -hmm. you would have to for me i would be critical because like i don't know where it is if i was going to be coaching juniors i would want to have a better understanding of the specific development phases Mm -hmm that someone's going through how can we can we can individualize those to somebody and mm-hmm. then how can we maximize the the development through that process but of, but with that layer on top of like yeah we don't want to push them too hard mm-hmm. too early we'll yeah. introduce yeah. it we want to have it fun but but with some real serious understanding of what's happening underneath to the body of the athlete yeah and i think from, from my understanding off of this review it sounds like there's like probably too much over extrapolating based on the research that's out there but this is 10 years ago so it'd be interesting to see you like where things have gone to and i think you brought up a really good point um about it might be a better way to look at it is in terms of cause no harm versus putting in the right training to optimize performance right those are two different things um i think one is probably more important so uh so if we were looking at it through the lens of like well we just want to make sure that they're whatever they're doing this isn't causing causing long-term damage as opposed to oh that they're this is age from 13 to or 7 to 13 we have to make sure we're doing strength training right so i think there's it in that in the physiological argument that you bring up i think the that point you made about like causing as little harm as possible is a really really good one that's that's half my life as a coach when i step outside of my wheelhouse i just don't want to hurt anybody (laughs) yeah 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 and 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 now that you're a parent yes yes (laughs) right yes (laughs) don't mess them up too bad (laughs) but read all this interesting Uh, stuff about development and yeah Mm -hmm. see what happens anyway yeah Anyway, so Cyrus has been on the edge of his seat to try to get in here, and I just keep talking. So go ahead, Cyrus. Sorry about that, <laughs> yeah, buddy. Yeah, so going through my roadmap, 
the next part I had, which you sort of touched on with your model there, was training to a program. Um, and we can race through this fairly quickly because I think all of our podcasts are about this. So we don't need to go too deeply in. But I just got like a few things you learn with this is how to use a power meter, which obviously we'd recommend everyone to read the book. And I think you've got that on your prescribed reading for your athletes. Mm-hmm. And then... Mm-hmm. With this, it enables you to distinguish your rider type, which is going to be really useful in racing. So mm-hmm. it's easy. I find a lot of people coming to me saying, oh, I think I'm a sprinter or I'm a climber or whatever. But I sort of say, well, let me see your numbers <laughs> and then I'll tell mm-hmm. you because some people come thinking they're a sprinter because they've got good sprint results, but mm-hmm. their sprint power is actually pretty rubbish but this this is Mm -hmm. always exciting when i see this because i think right this person knows how to race already because they're winning sprints because they're in the right place at the right time and Mm -hmm. they can and also they can still put out that power at the end of the race so that's one aspect of that training there and then also that comes into working with a coach at this stage so i'd have this in before starting amateur racing obviously that's a bit of a plug for all of us because we (laughs) want to make our jobs feel validated but the i it's a bit hypocritical for me because i did all of my junior racing without a coach and started amateur racing at an elite level without a coach but i think if you want to see results faster than having a a knowledgeable coach is the way to go and no one wants to be slugging away for a few years and wasting those years so that comes under that and then with that you will see specific efforts for the specific goals that the athlete has and then also the introduction of periodization into a program which is something many junior athletes wouldn't have uh, too much of in their program and that sort of prepares you for amateur racing where you're targeting specific events. So they're the sort of things I would have in before hitting any amateur races firstly. I'd be interested if you guys have anything to add there. I would would say... Yeah, go ahead, Damien. Yeah, that the, um, the coach in this instance, it may not specifically be a coach, but just some form of mentor somebody that's been yep. around the sport that can guide you through the process. Mm-hmm. If you haven't done any skills training, then at least you can ask them questions and they can show you things if you ride with them or yep. they can talk about racing and start getting you to understand the process of being an athlete preparing um, and then and then the mm-hmm. actual race itself. But I, I think that is really important to guide you and take your hand, even someone that would take you to a race pretty much. Yeah, and make sure you don't pin the number on the front of your jersey. Yeah, mm-hmm. all these simple like things. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. And, and even mm-hmm. like just give you some confidence about how you look. It's such a clicky sport. And if you mm-hmm. show up yeah, looking yes. wrong, that might be your first Starts impression. Starts the wrong length. You, you, you then have to, you know, work another three years to drop everybody in A grade to get the respect back <laughs> after that point. Mm-hmm. But... It, it, I think just this thing of someone guiding you through that process, someone that just knows a little bit more and can help you. Yeah. Um, of course, picking a coach is probably the best way to do that because they're mm-hmm. going to have experience to guide you in the training and then through the process correctly rather than getting some bro science here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but that, yeah. that's probably the biggest thing for me at this at this stage. Yeah, there's a few things to touch on here. It was, uh, one is that model uh, that I've talked with you guys before of the model for increasing performance in Formula One uh, versus the model to increase performance in cycling. And where in cycling, the engine and the driver are the same thing versus in Formula One, the driver is one entity and, the, and what makes the car go fast is another. And where you can have this split in cycling between the quote unquote engine builder versus the driver mentor. And I think with this, with this athlete I'm working with, I'm lucky to have a colleague that is in his country who was developed as a junior there. And so I've been uh, consulting with him to get feedback on how to develop uh, in that country, like specifically in terms of races and how to uh, move through categories and that type of thing. But yeah, so just that idea that when you are coaching someone remote, sometimes it's nice to have um, someone that you trust there to help with what you can't mentor them with so exactly like pending on the numbers and stuff like that but at the end of the day like in terms of like the races and and breaking things down after the races and talking strategy and stuff like that that would be coming back to me but even if you have this awesome coach as an ex-pro and a phd in exercise physiology and lives in the same city with you (laughs) that still that still doesn't you know (laughs) we're all laughing because it's just so unlikely but um Imagine that scenario, or I'm sure it exists for somebody, but like even even in that scenario, that athlete is still going to get mentoring from other from other athletes. And I think the the more potential that there is there, the more people are going to be attracted to them to to mentor them and give them advice. You just hope that they get good advice. So because um, you know best intentions are there, but who knows if the advice is really that great sometimes and. When you were talking about the profiling of juniors, Cyrus, there was a paper that I wrote about for the Cycling Science Digest a few months ago, and that paper was discriminating performance profiles of cycling disciplines. And I think this happened in either Belgium or uh, Holland. I can't remember. But um, that was a really interesting paper, too, where they had all these side games tests in lieu of VO2 max testing and lactate threshold testing and power meters and that type of thing. They had all these time tests and BMX shuttles and things like that that they did with their younger athletes. And they took those athletes because they had this data already. And then, then they asked the athletes that had gone pro uh, or had advanced to elite to do these tests that they had done as juniors. And if you look at the, the graphs that are set up in here, they have these shapes that kind of overlap each other. And you can see with the older athletes where the shapes kind of separate from each other. And the shapes, each like shape on this graph represents track racers or road racers or mountain bike racers or cyclocross racers. And you can see where there's slight overlaps between the different categorizations of riders. And cyclocross has covers almost all three of them except for track in terms of how they perform on these different tests. But if you go and you look at the juniors and how they overlap, everything is just like overlaps on top of each other. So my take home from this paper was with athletes 
who are really young, trying to discriminate between them at a young age using these side tests is going to be almost impossible because they're almost right on top of each other in this graph. So your skepticism of the rider that is like, I'm going to be a sprinter is, I think, pretty well founded uh, based on the findings of this of these papers. So, yeah. I just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and to give you a quick reminder about who we are and where you can find us. The show is a collaborative project between sports scientist and cycling coach Dr. Jason Boynton, professional cyclist and cycling coach Cyrus Monk, and myself, Damien Roos, professional cycling coach and author of the Cycling Science Digest. If you want to get in touch with any of us or find out more about what we do, check out the show notes of this episode for links to each of our websites or social media accounts. Also, a reminder that you can be part of the show too. We host the show live on Clubhouse every week. Just search Clubhouse for the Cycling Performance Club and you'll see our scheduled room. And with that, let's get back into it. So we'll we'll go, basically we've led into it a bit now already, but Mm -hmm. we'll go from that training with a program and and learning that things before you race, you're now into amateur racing. And there's obviously various levels of this um, from, it depends on which country you're in, what the grades are called, but Australia, we'd have A, B, C, D grade. Mm -hmm. America, you've got your cat one, two, three, four, five, and mm-hmm. yeah, basically the idea with these is that you have a pathway to work up through and once you're at the top level of this in whichever country you're in is the next step is going on. So in order to move up through those levels, I think obviously working with your coach, you'll be doing all the things we talk about in every podcast to improve performance and in, from the racing side of things the most important thing at this level is learning those skills and then as we touched on learning how to win so if i ever have an athlete come to me saying uh what grade should i race at this they'll often give two options if they're starting out they say i oh, should i enter c grade or d grade i'll always say d grade even if i know that they've got numbers capable of racing in b grade or a grade and they'll probably be super unpopular because they're right off the front right at the start and win by heaps but i always just encourage that because that way they just winning becomes normal if they're starting lower and winning their way up and also just gaining skills before they're in the top tier amateur racing where there's a bit more argy-bargy going on. It's often, it's not as easy as you might think because if you have a physiologically talented rider that's transferred from another sport and put them into a D-grade race, they're not going to gain much bunch skills because they will be saying goodbye to everyone else fairly quickly. But just the learning when to attack, how to get away is going to be able to transfer and be really useful to them as they move up through the levels. So I was wondering if you guys have anything to add for the amateur racing side of things before moving up? I don't think I agree with you 100%, Cyrus, but I think I'm willing to meet you partway here. I think the only red flag I'd have is potentially it could backfire where they're winning all this stuff and then as they're going up 
and it becomes harder in eighth grade. They're just dreaming about the days that they were dominating everybody. Yeah, agreed. And then they yeah, hit that, a plateau, and then they have the to risk. push through this plateau to to you know go into other places to understand the process and get more into the process in order to come out a yep. winner. And I think that's where it's important to have that upfront conversation we've talked about previously, and that it's not or you're not always going to be improving and there's going to be some downfalls and this is obviously not necessarily a case where your form is going backwards or your numbers are getting worse but results are getting worse and letting the athlete know that from the beginning so that they're prepared for it and it's not a end of the world experience for them yeah and it's their first test of grit it's their first test of having to go through something that is hard and that and you said before like that happens from juniors to seniors it happens from d to a like it's everywhere in the sport eventually you hit a wall where you seem like people are just riding away from you and you're at your limit and you don't know what's happening like everybody i'm sure has seen a bunch ride away from them and has just been so like puzzled frustrated annoyed yeah this gets into learners versus non-learners and, and that's part of it and it's this thing of i agree putting someone as low as possible so that they can learn as much as possible and even at, at lower grades you need a certain set of skills to survive a bunch uh race in that kind of world and then as you go up and this thing of learning racing it's i i remember trying to explain it years ago to to an athlete and it's like there are infinite scenarios on top of infinite scenarios that can happen in racing so there's patterns and there's things you can plan and and ways to approach certain things but in order for it to become instinct the only way to do it is to do it and to keep doing it and trying to really internalize those lessons so they become second nature and it's just time it is all about time Yep. Uh, so in the history of the podcast, this might be the first time you and I have had any type of disagreement, Cyrus. <laughs> so this is truly a momentous occasion. <laughs> but like I was saying, I'm, I'm willing to meet you part way here. Uh, I think I'm of the same mind as Damien in this case, that there is a risk of an athlete winning too much in lower categories and when they advance to a higher category, there is a potential that you introduce a massive letdown for them when they're no longer uh, able to win as easily as they were before in the lower category. So for beginners, I'd say, you know, to, for me, I'd rather have them lose a race and learn something um, while they're losing that race over the scenario where they are riding off the front to a solo victory and learning nothing new whatsoever. But where I agree with you is, is I think it is very important to have athletes win in a category before they are advanced to the next category, because it is possible to advance a rider to a higher category in a lot of cases without them ever having seen a win. So I think learning to actually win a bike race and experiencing what it feels like to win is very important important so i agree with you but can i add something here yeah it's, it, it seems like cyrus's theory of starting in d and tell me if i'm wrong cyrus it's because the australian system allows for rapid <laughs> movement yeah you can exactly. potentially go from yeah. d to a you, you know or you you can come in have one result in some other sport and the handicap is like yeah you're off scratch and you're like i, I got yeah. no idea and they're like you're there but in the u.s 
it's very different from what I understand. Uh, the process is points yeah. and, and time and all this yeah. sort of complicated path. So I think yeah, that that's, system... that's something I should have mentioned there is depends on the upgrade system for sure because I'm thinking Australian club racing where, yeah, if you show up to a Hawthorne Cycling Club criterium in Melbourne and win D-grade solo, you're straight up to C-grade the next week and... The same thing again the next week. So, yeah, it's possible to be in A grade in in four weeks. Whereas if, yeah, I'd certainly advise differently to the athlete if there was a system where it's going to take them much longer. I'd still lean towards a grade that I know they can win. But if it's at the risk of them, yeah, being stuck without actually getting a genuine racing experience because they're at a level much higher, then I'd, I'd go with your your method there, Jason. Something I'll add here is that it's important to learn how to win. And But the funny thing about that is, depending on what, where your path is, like if you're destined to be a pro and then you learn all the skills of how to win at certain categories underneath that pro level, maybe when you get to the pro, you'll never, ever get a win again. Yep. And so you've got to show yourself and show your, your talent. But then and learn all those skills, but then potentially you'll just be a domestic in the pro level and you'll never actually have to use those skills. So it's kind of one interesting thing about the sport is if you don't, you have to prove yourself at a certain level and then it can just all change and you have to learn a totally new skill in order to survive. Um, But I think winning, having that winning feeling, knowing how to win, I think is really, really important if you want to do well in the sport. And I've just got one quick story. I was interviewing this guy, John Herity, and he was the manager for JLT Condor or Condor Rafa. It was a Conti team in the UK. And he was talking about his time at British Cycling. And he sat in on this meeting with Rod Ellingsworth years and years ago when they were interviewing riders to be put into some new academy. And then um, Mark Cavendish shows up for the interview. And apparently the the test um, protocol and the everything they were sort of ticking people off with fitness wise was very strict and he didn't meet any of them he was overweight his numbers weren't that good um he couldn't arrive on the day they wanted him to arrive and all this sort of stuff and he walked out the door and the other guys were like no we're going to cross him off and john said he's the only guy that's won a bike race out of all the people we've interviewed he's the only one that's won a bike race plus he's working at a bank full-time so imagine if we gave him a chance, what would happen, you know, and the rest is history. But it proves that point that winning, knowing how to win is really, really important if you want to continue to keep winning as you move up, if you're not placed as a domestic. Yeah, and that goes on to my next point, which is from here, I have so many people come up as amateurs and say, how do I get to the next level how do i get onto a continental team how do i i want to go pro i want to make the national team so i can race the under 23 races and it's simple just win races like that is everything else takes care of itself if you can win races have so many people worrying about agents or contacts and obviously a lot of who you know comes into it but if you win races, the rest takes care of itself. You'll be approached by people. People will want to be associated with you and get you deals just for having their stuff. name next to you. Yeah, exactly. So winning races from here on in, obviously up to the amateur racing point, there's a lot of other things that come into it. But from amateur racing up, it's about winning races. And then as you said, you may get to 
a world tour team and never win another race. And I know many athletes have done that and have a, a super long career without winning a race or only winning one or two, but no world tour team is selecting their domestiques based on being good domestiques at the lower level. They're selecting guys that have won races. If you look at uh, Tim DeClerc, who rides the front every tour stage at the moment for quick step, he's just the, the tractor they call him, who'll ride for 100Ks, hasn't won a race in three years, I think, but when he was riding for a... Belgian pro continental team sport finder in here. I think he won seven Kermises in one year, won a few other UCI races, quick step signed him. And now he's, he, that's his job now is to do that. But so many people will, super domestic. Yep. So many people will contact team saying, oh, I want to be a domestic. I'm really good at that. But the reality is you just have to win races at a lower level to move up. So then yeah, going up a level from amateur racing, it will depend on age at this point as to where a rider will go. But usually if they're coming out of juniors or still under 23s from after amateur racing, they'll be aiming for national team selection to do some of the big under 23 races. And these are ones that pro teams will look at. Um, and some of the better under 23 teams will get to race some pro races as well or they'll be trying to slot straight into a continental level team. And the beauty of cycling as a sport is from this point, you are racing against world tour teams. So my continental team at the moment, every race we're at has multiple world tour teams there, some more than others. But so this means it's not like football where you're, if you're, like in soccer, if you're in the second division and trying to get into the Premier League, yeah, you're, you're in cycling, it would be as if occasionally every third week your soccer team is playing a Premier League team and you, you have that ability to get noticed there. So I think that is the beauty of this sport is once you've won your way up to that level, it is much easier to get noticed at a higher level with results there. Um, but the things I've sort of noted here is what changes from amateur racing to this level and things for riders to be aware of is bunch skills again, and this is at every stage along the way, but as the, the peloton becomes bigger at this level, you've suddenly got 150 to 180 riders in the bunch as with most amateur racing is you wouldn't have riders experiencing over 100 ever. So this is different again. And then there's often a big increase in race distance at this level because so much domestic amateur racing will be between the 100 100 and 150 kilometer mark, whereas at this level you'll be getting up around the 200 kilometer mark often or longer stage races and you'd experience it at an amateur level. And then this is also at this level, the under 23 and continental level, you're getting the experience that a, a pro cyclist would get in terms of living away from home and then also racing outside of your home country. Often amateur athletes will only ever race near home conditions that they're used to, climate, terrain that they're used to. Whereas once you're at this level, you're traveling, you're having to work out how to prepare for a race with two travel days beforehand, staying in a hotel, 
eating different food because the supermarket doesn't have the oats you'd usually eat. All these little things that riders completely forget to factor in when they think about moving up a level. So I'd be interested, Damien, your thoughts with this as you're trying to move athletes up. Can we just take a moment back here, though? I think we've kind of gone over this pretty quickly. This jump is very difficult to make. Not, yeah. not like you can have the most talented athlete in the world, but then there's a lot of factors that make the, this step very difficult. So location, um, timing, age, like, okay, the most traditional path is you're a junior, you go to junior worlds for something in Australia, you go to track junior worlds, you show your form somewhere else, you get selected for a U23 national team, you know, you go to Tula Lavinia, show yourself and you're signed and you're away. But there's many different paths and there's no set rules to being a pro. We've seen lots of different ways that it's happened, but I, I am interested in having a bit of a discussion about ways that this can happen, um, yeah. especially if you're an athlete that's starting at 20 and wanting to move on. Um, what type of options out there? The things that I first think about is like, okay, you want to be pro. Where do you want to be pro? There's a few different scenes around the world where you can get by and ride your bike full time. Um, they're not all world tour. So that's sort of one way of looking at it. Um, there's alternative paths into the into the world tour or um, pro team level where you go through clubs in Belgium or France to try and get there. So I, I am curious about different ways that you've seen riders get into higher levels. Yeah, I think uh, another important thing I was just thinking about as you said that is also where you're suited to racing because that will change how likely you are to get in i think it's really difficult nowadays to win races in australia or the us and go pro directly from there because well go pro into a world tour team um directly from there because they're just not getting the exposure. It's not on the radar of these teams' results there. Whereas, so a lot of people will then choose to move to a French amateur team or a Belgian amateur team, or Italy has dropped off the map a little bit, but that's another one riders have historically gone to. And that's going to then depend on your rider type possibly which you would prefer to race out of those so belgium's going to be more the classic style rider or sprinter france generally more suited to punchers who can yeah get over hills but sprint a bit and then italy is going to be the climbers obviously loads and loads of exceptions to that rule but that is what we see riders from america and the u.s and the uk seeing as it's an english-speaking podcast i assume that's where most of our listeners are tuning in from that's that's where we see riders move to and from that amateur scene there, they will be trying to win their way up to the a continental team in Belgium or an under-23 team in Belgium or the likes of that in France as well, in Italy as well. There's various continental teams in each of those countries and then obviously... In getting results here, you also catch the eye of national team selectors from back home. So that would be what I've probably seen the most 
from the non-European countries, the way I've seen the most people move into the pro ranks and just like a, a heads up for anyone planning on it, it is a really difficult lifestyle racing for an amateur team in any of these countries because you're away from home, generally barely getting enough uh, money or support to get by with just getting groceries. Like it's, it's not a glamorous lifestyle whatsoever. And so in this case, it's often a boom or bust kind of thing in that riders will move through in one or two years or they'll decide the sport's not for them. So it is a bit of a cutthroat period in the process of moving up and I think that's important to to let athletes know that it isn't often you won't often speak to athletes that have ridden for a French continent uh, French amateur team sorry for a year and they often won't tell you it was the best year of their lives <laughs> it's not very gl- glamorous but the key here is results and winning races yeah I've, I've seen many examples of this where somebody is is flying through doing really well domestically they take the leap wherever to the US yep. uh, Europe wherever one year out out of the sport racked it yeah yeah it's it's super common and that's where that grit comes in um, again so and also yeah at at this level as well so i had it listed under the the under 23 and continental level but yeah in that amateur scene if you're taking that step that's where you get that experience away from home and and that's a big thing because a lot of athletes will haven't actually thought about any point along the way that they want to live away from their home country they're just thinking i want to be a pro cyclist i want to be a pro cyclist at no point have they factored in do i actually want to live away from my family and friends for 10 months of the year and not have any control over my movements because I'm just having to adhere to this race schedule consistently throughout the year. It's something that you do have to factor in with riders um, early on if they're deciding that they they want to do that for a living. Yeah, and, and the, the dark side of it, you kind of sort of touching on it a little bit. I remember talking to Phil Guyman about sort of at the end of his pro career and it was kind of... For him, it just came down to this point of like, who's willing just to get paid nothing to do all these things? Like, there is a certain level of cyclist in the world that isn't glamorous at all. And it's just, there's always someone willing to come up and take the position, no matter how badly paid it is, no matter what the conditions are. And so there's always the chance that you can end up in those positions. Um, But I I do want to get back to that original question about the changes from these levels because it's something that I've had to put a lot of time into this year and the things that just creep up on you I'm not even living the life but just being exposed to it the things that creep up on you like the travel is one thing it's kind of normal but just say you're even just doing a domestic transfer in Europe and you have breakfast but then you don't eat for another 10 hours because you're on the move you're at a bad airport the plane doesn't have food like there is and then you just get to your place and it's the day before a big race and you're like, oh, this is not ideal preparation. Um, yeah. All these small things like that. Yeah, the the race food um, at hotels and things, totally different to what you're used to. Uh, the weather conditions changing so much, snow one weekend, you know, 40 degrees the next weekend because you're just moving around a continent from one side to the other. Um, 
these these small things are, I think, the things that will get you in the end. And um, depending on the path that you take to get to these positions, I think, depends on how much grit you actually need to survive them. Because someone has had smooth sailing yeah. through that traditional path everything is laid out for them. Uh, so they've never had to experience these sort of difficulties, but anybody that deviates off that is going to find it. And even the best are, you know, if you're at a race somewhere, uh, and it's like a pro team level race and it's not at a, a a tier one kind of event. Yeah. You're going to end up in a hotel even, well, people even talk about it even in the zero and the tour, you end up at hotels sometimes that are questionable. So yeah, you still need it when you go through your career. And I think it's valuable if you can get through and, and learn from all of that, because then you take back your control, you take back control of what you can do, uh, and you own what you can own. And then that's the best you can do at any time. But once you have that system in place, no one can take it away from you. So then you give yourself the best chance of performing when you need to. Yeah. And one thing on that, I'm always cautious of athletes, having a super strict pre-race routine, whether that's the day before or the morning of, just because once you're at the level where you're in a different place every time, you might not have access to the same things that you would usually eat or you might not be able to do the same ride the day before, the morning of, or this kind of thing. If athletes become the slightest bit superstitious about things like that, which yep. we sort of know from a physiological standpoint aren't making that much difference to performance, but in from a psychological standpoint for the athlete, there's it becomes a major source of stress and anxiety the during the race if they haven't had their ideal preparation. But it's important to let the athlete know that the reality is as you move up through the levels, a lot of things become outside of your control and you just have to be able to cope with that and realize that it's not going to affect your performance as much as you may think it might. Yeah. Um, all right. We might move quickly now onto the difference between this level that we were just discussing under 23 and and the continental level onto the professional, which is going to be the pro tour and world tour pro series. I think it might be called now changes each year, Mm -hmm. but the, to start this off, I did look at one of the studies, which has come out, I think at the end of last year, but this looked at comparing the Tyrrell KTM under 23 team and Androni Giacatoli, which is a pro series team and Bora Hansgrohe world tour team at the tour of the Alps last year. Mm-hmm. And this was basically just looking at the, doing some power profiling between these two from the, from the race data and comparing the differences between these athletes. And it, it basically showed that, the under 23 team were putting out their big numbers much earlier in the race and not able to sustain these later. Whereas for the pro riders, they were hitting the numbers in the last hour of the race. Mm -hmm. And basically the authors concluded from that, that to be at this elite world tour level, you have to be at, it's this, the different, the numbers weren't much different. That was one thing they noted between the under 23 team and the world tour team. They were able to sustain similar maximal aerobic power and 20 minute mean power. But the, the main difference was where it was during the race. 
And it was sort of suggesting then that basically to be that uh, world-class rider, you have to be able to put out this power at the end of a race after a massive energy expenditure already. I think one of the criticisms I had for this, and it is something that a lot of people comment on with the difference, is team objectives at these races. So... An under-23 team is going to this race knowing that none of their riders can win the race. None of these riders are going to be at that level yet Mm -hmm. or there there may be certain circumstances where there is a freak that's that's up there already and might have a chance, but the majority of these teams, they're going for the early breakaway. (laughs) Yeah. So their whole, whole objective is saying to all of their guys, this first climb... Everyone's going full gas. We need one or two guys in the breakaway. Get as much TV time as possible. More sponsors <laughs> next year, bigger budget. That's that's the goal. And if from my continental team, for example, if we're at a pro series race with a lot of big teams and we know it's going to be an absolute dogfight to get anywhere in the sprint at the end, our number one objective is going to be the early break. So I'll, for example, see my best five-minute power between kilometers five and ten in the race. So I think that's something to note in for these riders. The race objectives are going to be different as you move up the levels and as you progress as a rider. So, for example, my experience with EF Education First when I was doing a stagiaire with that team was chasing down breakaways. So my power profile for that would be completely different to if I'm a preferred rider for a race with Evo Pro now where I might be seeing an average watts of 220, 225, uh, 220 to 250 for a race but some big spikes at the end mm-hmm. as I'm contesting the final whereas the EF, I'm... Um, averaging 300 watts for the day but never going over 400 just because I'm riding on the front of the peloton and just swapping turns. So I think that is a big difference that happens at this level because of the team aspect. You are assigned a role and the the demands of that role is going to change completely what's required of you as a rider in each race. So... I'd say that is the the big difference as you're moving into the professional racing. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. It was all really informative to hear from both of you guys. The the only thing that I have uh, from a coaching standpoint, uh, having colleagues that have actually done the coach the athlete from the amateur to the pro, and I'd be interested to hear your uh, thoughts on this, Cyrus, is that the it's surprising to the athletes when they do switch into the pro team from the amateur that they're surprised at the lack of change in the training like there's doesn't seem to be that much of a change it's just more of the same and i would maybe there might be an argument for if you're on a pro team there's going to be more staff that would be paying attention to what you're doing but it's not like there's your physiology changes or like there's massive changes in like they pull out their magic wand and things change that much but this is like i said this is uh this is what i'm getting secondhand from a 
uh, a coach that that has coached at this high level and has worked with multiple athletes from that amateur to pro uh, transition. Uh, what are your thoughts, Cyrus? Yeah, I would I would say similar. In an ideal world, the training doesn't change at all, really, because the obviously the event might change in terms of the event is a little longer or if it's a stage race, which is going to require the athlete to have a higher CTL, then the load might be a little different, but that's sort of something that athletes will have noticed throughout as they move up the levels, the load will have increased anyway. And for an athlete to get to that level, they'll have to, they're used to adapting to increases in load. But I think the main change once you're at that professional level is the adaptability of a program because if you're coaching an amateur athlete with six weeks until their target event it's pretty easy to set out that program and be confident as a coach that everything along the way will go smoothly and it's it's actually a lot easier as a a coach in that scenario than coaching a professional athlete where all of a sudden their race program changes or their have two travel days in the middle of something they have a covid test at 11 a.m the morning that they're supposed to be doing a five-hour ride like just things like this mean that they those programs have to be able to adapt and then the rider has to be able to accept that what they had planned at the start of the week may change when it gets to a, a yeah professional race i'd be interested Damien if you've noticed similar in coaching a professional athlete now it just yeah becomes about other things like you have your basics down as far as how you want to plan things and do things but it's just about adaptability because there are so many changes and it becomes this thing of the things that can't move get set in stone and sometimes they change as well though but then it's about what can I do in this period to get as prepared as possible for the next goal. Yeah. And it's very different. And I I was just thinking when you were saying that, I've got this theory about last year with the lockdown and everything. The riders that were performing well at the end of last year, they generally don't seem to be performing as well this year. And it's probably because they have had that perfect build. They're a different type of athlete that needs that rhythm and consistency in their training up to that point. And they just, everything was perfect. And now when it gets back into a normal season, you see the old guard coming back you know the people that could perform and they're coming back and they're showing this is how you live the pro life and still perform and yeah well i almost i almost think a lot of it comes down to then um once you have a busy race season a lot of it is where we started today just that uh physiological ceiling in that if you can handle the race load And if you look at a classic season, for example, where everyone's essentially racing the same races for a month, that there's no coaching in that because all the riders are doing the same thing and taking the recovery days in between. The coaching's before that. But uh, once, once all the riders have the same program, a lot of it just comes down to purely genetics and and And, and how the rider responds. Yeah, how the rider responds in the race, who they are. As a person, because yeah, like a pro season is defined, like at least from October to February, it's defined and there's nothing more you can do, but that's the, that's your opportunity, but there really isn't much difference that you can 
sort of set someone apart by the time they hit a race. You know, like maybe, yeah, you can give them yep. more volume or something different in, in intensity. But, yeah, once you hit that race season, it's like hands off, hand it over to the DS and just yep. fingers crossed, you know. Yeah. And then it's just yeah. surviving those. The, the rider themselves has to work out how to recover in a stage race to perform on the day they want to. They have to um, learn how to recover after a big one-day race so they can perform the next weekend as well. And it's it's the skills where it's handed back over to the rider for a huge chunk of time. Um, and you can help them, but really it's just like you just see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the – one of the differences in training that I would note, and it's only sort of once you're you're one of the big dogs and choosing your own program, is the use of training camps. So that is something that amateur riders won't often be able to do too much because they're quite expensive to go away for somewhere to somewhere for two weeks or three weeks just to train but that's something a difference you'll notice in the top tier world tour riders is that period of massive load and then recovery after that leading into a race whereas even world tour riders at the domestique level won't be doing those same training camps they'll generally just be racing all year round and then get thrown in to a grand tour in find out a week before whether they're racing it or not but the yeah, richie port and garant thomas like they they know exactly their run into the tour and they can plan to dig a massive hole for certain periods where other athletes racing at the level below or yet yeah, the the less the less respected athletes in the world tour teams they have less control over what they'll be doing and they have to be more adaptable in their program Cool. Well, that's all I have. That's yeah, that's sounds my like roadmap a, done. We were shooting for an hour again. We were at an hour and a half. We can escape the hour and a half, but it was still a good conversation. It's still definitely worth having. Um, I thank you guys very much for having that conversation with me. I appreciate it. I learned a lot, and hopefully the listen listeners also learned a lot from that. Um, oh, just a little bit of news. We have a new Facebook page for... As, as Cyrus had put it, for all the boomers out there like me that still use Facebook. <laughs> um, and so if anyone wants to uh, follow us or hit the like button on our new Facebook page, it'd be awesome. And uh, that, I'm hoping that is a place where some conversation can kind of open up there as well. People can get a hold of us and tell us what they want us to talk about or give us thoughts on, on the on the podcast so far so i'll I'll let you guys have final words here uh thanks for listening yeah yeah thanks again guys good all right awesome uh thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you see you next week cool see you then